Hey, beautiful. My new book, Beautiful Writers, a journey of big dreams and messy manuscripts with tricks of the trade from best-selling authors is finally out in bookstores. I hope you'll pick up a copy for yourself or a creative in your life. If at any time you find yourself feeling out of your league or intimidated by the publishing industry, I hope my coming of career dreams, adventures, and misadventures will support you to find and believe in your own path. Nothing makes me happier on the page or on the airwaves here than having the chance to remind you that you're magic and you have every reason to believe in your dreams. Now, on to the show. Yesterday, I actually thought about one of the things I wrote in Tiny Beautiful Things in the column, Write Like a Motherfucker. <laughs> I said, listen, writing's hard, but coal mining's harder. And yesterday, I realized, nope, I was wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Writers don't really talk about, I'm going to write a book. Writers write. And that's the thing that I try to tell people. Talk less, write more. Nice. That's a good one. I tried something new for this What Would They Do episode. Hi, this is Linda Sievertson, and you are at the Beautiful Writers Podcast, where I love asking the questions that make my writing path easier, shorter, and frankly, more fun. And I totally dig literary matchmaking. Of course, the voices you've just heard of number one New York Times bestselling memoirist and Oprah Book Club pick Cheryl Strayed and Oscar-nominated screenwriter, actress, and best-selling author, Nia Vardalos, they're not meeting here for the first time. They've done in-person interviews together, but they do believe this is their first ever combo podcast appearance. Nia adapted Cheryl's book, Tiny Beautiful Things, for the stage and plays the lead character, Sugar, who was really Cheryl, who in real life was the advice columnist, Dear Sugar. <laughs> Confused? Wait. Who is who and what is what? Okay, real quick. Remember that 2002 movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? It's hilarious. The highest grossing romantic comedy of all time until 2016. Nia played the starring role, Tula, and was nominated for a Best Actress Golden Globe for her performance, which was amazing because she'd written it originally as a one-woman show because her agent couldn't get her any acting auditions. Rita Wilson fell in love with this little play and brought her husband, Tom Hanks, who turned it into a film. Nia was then nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay and has gone on to write a ton of scripts, including one with Tom Hanks that became Larry Crown, starring he and Julia Roberts. But she's also a book writer. Her memoir about adoption, Instant Mom, is a riveting read. It's so honest and entertaining from a major advocate for adoption. Cheryl is the mother of two, and of course, she is the one writer in the world who inspired Oprah to relaunch her famous book club. Oprah's Book Club 2.0 opened with Cheryl's memoir, Wild, and the world went wild for all things Miss Strayed. Reese Witherspoon, in fact, was nominated for an Oscar for playing Cheryl in the film by the same name. Big stuff, right? But as you'll hear, these creative icons are in it, you guys, just like we are. They're in the thick of trying desperately to bring forth their art within crazy busy personal lives, 
while feeling the overwhelm of being citizens trying not to let the political chaos of our times derail their art. If you're listening right now, wondering how not to let the dumpster fires in Washington distract you, you're going to love this conversation. I had only one goal during our chat, to ask them the questions that stump me in my life as a writer. I often find myself saying under my breath, what would Cheryl do? Or what would Nia tell me to do in this situation? So lucky me, lucky us, I got the chance. Idols unplugged, you could say. It feels like the writing gods were smiling on this conversation. The tech gods, mm, well, they can be a little harder to appease. You will notice a few scratchy cell phone reception moments, but it wasn't for our lack of trying other options. A few weeks ago, all three of us were on the line via our computers and the latest and greatest software, but only two of us at any one time could hear the other, so we just gave up, whatevs. We do what we can, people, from our homes (laughs) and in our pajamas. Regardless, I feel like the luckiest person with a call-in conference line and a dream. And triply so, because I get to share these once-in-a-lifetime conversations with you. You'll see that we start already in progress. I've just apologized to Cheryl for those tech god fails after Nia and I had been comparing notes on our unsavory breakfast practices. Welcome. We're fine. We're just in our pajamas still, or at least one of us is. I'm just naked. Are you naked? Are you wearing a- yeah. That's so hot. I know. Nia's in a bathtub. Do you actually do interviews from a bathtub, Nia? No. I'm not uh I'm not cool in any way. I'm <laughs> sweatpants, my hair is scrunched on top of my head, and I'm drinking the aforementioned smoothie that's really disgusting, but oh, apparently yeah. good for me. Do you do that? Do you drink smoothies that are supposed to be good for you? I don't know, Cheryl. I'm trying. I'm trying to clear up my skin. I looked at my daughter's skin the other day and I thought, oh, I remember. I remember having no pores. Oh, so yeah. I'm trying to uh, just get a little bit more healthy. Mm. Good for you. I've been drinking swamp grass for my entire life. In fact, I made my poor son. He had to go to school, elementary school, after swamp grass every single morning. But he chugged it down. It's good. Oh, my oh, God. good. <laughs> He had to go to therapy over it, but yeah, he checked it down. All right. This is our What Would Cheryl and Nia Do episode. I just have so many questions, you guys. So I'm going to dig in. All right. First one, you're both highly prolific. So at its heart, this question is about productivity. Imagine this. You're working on a new book. The energy is flowing. You've cleared your schedule. And maybe for Nia, you're working on a script. You've cleared your schedule for the day. Kids are at school. Food maybe even is prepped in the fridge. You've had your gross smoothie. However, there is a dumpster fire in Washington and the breaking news story is all over the networks. Do you take a quick peek? Do you sit down for an hour or do you ignore the drama knowing that you'll hear about it later? Nia, start. What do you do? I tend to turn off my Wi-Fi when I'm writing because I have zero willpower when it comes to checking Twitter or eating. I enjoy eating and I enjoy Twitter, and so I just limit it. I used to do a thing of a write a page, eat a snack, I call it. But now I, I try and just write a chunk, a scene, and I give myself rewards. Like you can now look and see what Jane Fonda's doing. Getting arrested. Write a page, eat a snack. I think that's a tweetable. 
I have paid you to snack. Okay, I'm going to try to follow Nia's boot camp for the next <laughs> couple of weeks because I'm just a mess. I always feel like, okay, did I sort of tell the truth in these interviews or should I? Please. Oh, my God, I'm a hot <laughs> mess. Tell Please truth. tell the truth. I just try to, I try to strike that balance between being disciplined and then sometimes being like, okay, let's take a peek at what's going on. Yeah. And it's day by day. Some days I do better than others. Yep. I can tell you that it's really a challenge for me. And I think it's interesting. Nia said, what did you say, Nia? You don't have any willpower. Is that <laughs> yeah. the word you use? For but here's the thing. I've been reading about that a bit. And, you know, none of us do. Willpower is not really, I think, a thing. <laughs> you know, oh, really? I, I think we've all grown up and been told that somehow we're supposed to be able to force ourselves to do the things that are difficult instead of doing the things that are easy. And I think it's just a challenge for everybody. And so the ways that we all come up with managing that are wide and varied. But for me, they're literally wide and varied on a day-to-day basis. Some days I succeed at saying, I'm not going to let anything interfere. I'm just going to get this work done. And other days, the entire day goes and I have to go to bed feeling ashamed because I never did turn to the work that I was most meaningfully supposed to be doing. I think a big process for me is learning how to strike that balance between forgiving myself for that, for letting myself down, and also being the kind of captain of my own personal boot camp and saying, today you aren't going to. I think nothing sadly works for me better than a deadline. That's been my saving grace in a lot of times. When somebody's about to be start harassing me because yeah. they expect something in their hands, it's usually when I best get to work. I think that what you described when you said feeling ashamed of myself, I think all these emotions are important. And I think trying to create an idyllic situation to write within doesn't inspire art. I think mood inspires art. That's why maybe it's better to write in New York or Oregon than it is in vapid L.A., I think. Vapid <laughs> <laughs> L.A., that's awesome. <laughs> I just think it's okay to have those days, definitely, because how we feel is going to come through our fingertips. So I say embrace the shame spiral because something great is going to come out of it. Yeah, and maybe I agree with that entirely. And maybe the greatest thing, certainly in my own life, is humility, is that sense of, You know, a lot of times, frankly, being on my knees before the universe when I'm trying to write, when I'm trying to make something that doesn't exist and bring it into the world, I think that if I felt like, yeah, I'm winning, winning every day here, (laughs) (laughs) drinking a healthy smoothie without complaint and getting to work and working that whole day and without looking at Twitter, and I think that that would be bad for my work. I do. I know exactly what you mean. The pursuit is far more interesting than achieving the goal. Mm. (laughs) And also, both wild and tiny, beautiful things. And even instant mom, if you think about it, they're all about bearing the unbearable. Instant mom, Nia, was your story of making this unbearable journey that you were on of not being able to conceive a child, making it bearable and how you solved that and created a beautiful family for yourself. But the unbearable is, I think, what we're all dealing with every single day. And it can be on the smallest scale or it can be on the big scale. For me, the Washington dumpster fires are unbearable. And yeah. I was finding that I was 
waking up with the dumpster fire in my mind and going to sleep with it in my mind and then on my mind all day, every day. We talked with Tom Hanks about that very thing. He said he was checking online news 17 times a day, as were we, and it has become unbearable. So for me, I'm having to wrestle myself to the ground these days, wrestle my schedule down to the ground and be like, not today, not today. You are not watching it today. You will find out about it later. But then other days, I just have to sit there and watch it. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, and the news, let's talk about the news, the real things that are going on in the world outside of our work. It's interesting that you asked this because it was just yesterday that I had a short story view. I was working on the revision and I really needed a full day of work. And yet I found myself periodically turning on NPR to listen to the impeachment proceedings in the Senate and find and feeling such anger and despair and grief. Really, the only way I can best describe the feeling I have about what's happening in our nation right now is grief. And I have to consciously step away from it because my following the story right now in this day wasn't ultimately going to serve me when I came to finishing that story. And there is that sense of powerlessness that I absolutely have, and I don't think I'm alone in that. And so I think that as much as I believe that it's really important that we're informed citizens, I don't think that that means that we have to be informed minute by minute. I think it matters more that we do the real work of creation that we need to do to make our lives run and, and that we come back to it at some more contemplative moment in our lives where we can absorb things like what is going on in the Senate with the impeachment. And at least that's the solution I've come up with. That's yeah. the obligation I feel as a citizen. Mm. All right. A little bit different. It's a Sunday morning. You've had a fantastic Saturday with your partner and or your kids. And everybody has plans for the day. They're out of the house. You've got 10 hours. The book or article or script you're working on is talking to you and you're in the juicy juice. And then suddenly family's plans change and mom, can you make those pancakes? Or honey, let's go to the mall and pick up that thing you've been wanting. What do you do? Oh, I definitely do. It's Sunday. Weekends are for kids and I do it. Perfect. Yeah. You just described the story of my life Monday to Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it really is it's interesting because I have really been grappling with this so hard lately because I have no idea I wish somebody would tell me how actually this is done how you're a writer and also a mother and a member of a domestic unit a domestic family I guess that's what it's called I just wish everyone would go to boarding school or something but you know I really don't know the answer to it and all I can say is I'm trying lately to take advice that I've occasionally given is sugar. And that is to remember to take the long view because mm. I have a book due. I have all these projects in the works that I'm trying to finish. And I'm in the slow lane because I also have to do things like figure out what's for dinner every night and figure out how to get <laughs> so-and-so to basketball and the other one to the guitar lesson, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And I'm like, okay, well, this too shall pass to take the long view and realize this is just an era of my life. In five or six years' time, my kids will be off at college, hopefully, if not in prison, (laughs) in college. And in that same way when they were toddlers, where those days felt endless, where it was just like trying to get people to nap and trying to get people to eat their vegetables. You thought they'd never end, and then they ended. And then now it's this other part. And so I think what I have to remember is that I'll look back on these days and smile 
I won't feel the sense of panic and despair that I sometimes feel when it comes to making time for my work. Yeah, for sure. My kid is 30 or almost 30. And he's gone. In fact, he just moved. He now lives in Arizona. He's always been in LA and we've always seen each other two, three, four times a week. And now he's gone. And sometimes I just wander through the house like it's empty nesting again. You go through different stages of empty nesting when they go to school and all sorts of stuff. But this is like a whole nother level. And then you start going, oh, grandkids. And then you're down. I mean, it's just never going to end. That family commitment, that family love, that desire to parent, even if it's a house of dogs, which I also have, it never goes away. So I love this idea that you're still wrestling with this, Cheryl. This makes me so relieved. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad it's of some comfort. (laughs) I can't imagine that. Mia, do you ever sort of close your eyes and think about the day when actually you'll have your empty nest? Yeah, it's very strange. When we were in New York, uh, when I was doing the play, I had just such flashbacks of being a theater nerd walking yeah. to work with my leg warmers because, <laughs> as I said, I've never been cool. And I had so much time, Cheryl, that it was bizarre. I felt lazy when I found myself at Bergdorf's looking at shoes. So yeah. at first I went to the gym a lot. I looked amazing. And then I just realized I couldn't just use my energy for the show. But what I needed to do was be quiet because, as you know, sugar has the bulk of the dialogue in Tiny Beautiful Things. So I wrote. I just every day put myself on a schedule to enjoy New York, but also write for four hours. On two show days, I was off. I did not make myself write. And I came out of it with two screenplays, so I felt good about my time. But maybe I should have done something else. I'm not sure, but I definitely knew I was getting antsy. I bet those screenplays are some of the best stuff you've ever written. And I'll tell you why I think that. Martha Peck talked about on this show about how before she writes, she reads her favorite writers from history, current writers, and, you know, dead people. And that gave me the impetus for wanting to do that myself. So when I sit down to write, sometimes I will pull out tiny, beautiful things before I write. And always, that is my best work. When I've read Cheryl's Tiny Beautiful Things first, I write write the best stuff. I write the deepest, most profound stuff. And it's easier. It's so much easier than just starting on my own. I completely agree with you. And Cheryl, we're going to have to embarrass you for a minute, but here's what happened. (laughs) To use a phrase of yours or a word of yours, what happened is performing your word unzipped me. And that is a word of yours that just is so relevant for what happened to me in that time. I was feeling emotions that I had definitely pushed down for years. I had this outlet in the show. I loved our cast and our director, Tommy Kale. And I felt very whole. However, I wasn't with my daughter. So when I started to write, I usually write comedies. But what happened is I chose to be as brave as the character I was portraying, which is you, Sugar, on stage. Amazing. I wrote a drama for the first time in my life. And we're going into production on it in approximately three months. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so great. Congratulations. I didn't know that. That's so wonderful. That is amazing. That's really interesting. That's cool. And I get it. I really get it. So, Cheryl, thank you. I guess I have to give you money now. 
That is so beautiful. I know exactly what you're talking about. I certainly really one of my few kind of rituals when it comes to writing is that very often, almost always, I begin, before I start writing, I'll just pick up usually a book of poetry and just peruse myself and grab a book and read a little something, a snippet, a page, a few poems, just to shift my brain into that other place where we make language on the page. And that's what I do. It's really helpful. I think we need each other. We stand on the backs of those writers who came before us, I really believe. And I always feel like that I couldn't write without that reading, without that place that's made when you read some language that you love. Great advice. All right. You've heard the stats. Something like 80% of Americans say that they want to write. I have been in a massage where all the masseuse did after he asked me what I did for a living was talk about his novel for the whole hour. I've been in the dentist chair with a mouthful of cotton where the dentist starts talking all about the book he's writing and asking me questions when I can't even talk. I got hit up at my father's memorial service by a chiropractor I had never met who wanted a book deal. Only minutes after my cousin tried to talk to me about her poetry book in the pews. This is while I had snot running down my chin. So what do you guys do when you go places and all anybody wants to do is pick your brain about writing and you have nothing to give? (laughs) Mia? (laughs) Okay, there are two answers because I walk around with this face. And so from any, (laughs) any Starbucks to church, everyone's got an idea for me that oh my god me to write. It's a movie that happened, uh, an idea for you. It happened in my village. It was a massacre. It's a romantic <laughs> comedy. I want to play myself. That's my life. <laughs> right. And so I try to say, you must write it. Please, it's better in your voice and encourage people because I really do want the marginalized voice to write more. I yeah. really do. I speak on screenwriting. I look to the back and I see the indigenous woman at the back, shyly at this writing course. And I just want to run up and hug her and say, please write your story. So I am very, very encouraging about writers. However, writers don't really talk about, I'm going to write a book. Writers write. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I try to tell people. Talk less, write more. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Do I get this? Do I get this a lot? Because not only am I a published author and because of Wild, so many people really, when you have to answer that inevitable question, after I say I'm a writer, well, have you written anything that I've heard of? Uh, (laughs) Now I have a book that a lot of people have. So imagine all the conversations that come after that. But also because my work is so personal, people open their hearts to me. They feel that they know me. And they also see me, I think, as a sort of loving and nurturing force. And I think every woman gets that. Every woman writer, the world expects her to be in some ways the teacher and the nurturer and the servant. And the advice I've given is sugar. All of that compounds to make this a very difficult thing for me and that I've had to over and over again try to set my boundaries and say things like when somebody says to me on an airplane or even at a Q&A at one of my events, how do you write a book? And as Nia said, writers write. You write a book one page at a time, one sentence at a time. I didn't know the answer to that myself before I wrote my first book, which wasn't wild. It was a novel called Torch. 
you have to do the work and teach yourself what the work is. And I also, luckily, in Tiny Beautiful Things, have that piece in which I do tell people how to be a writer. I can sort of refer people to write like a motherfucker. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> My answer is I strike a balance again where I don't do all of one thing. Sometimes I will sit there and give somebody lots of advice. And other times I will set a boundary and say, oh, lots of interviews on the Internet where I talk about writing or go read my book, Tiny Beautiful Things. And then the truth is in the middle that I think we all do sometimes receive great advice from people we chat with. And we all learn a lot when we do the work ourselves. Well, Glennon Doyle said on the show that you gave her the best advice anybody ever had, which was, no one can write a book. You just can't look at it like that. Nobody has ever known how to write a book. <laughs> right. Yeah. I said, I'm always reminded as I'm writing a book is the way it feels to be writing a book is that it's impossible to write a book. That's right. It's a feeling. Got it. I feel that way really. Still, I mean, right now, as we speak, when I get off this phone call, I am trying to land the ending of this short story that I'm writing for an anthology. And the whole, all I've spent this whole last week or two trying to land that ending. And the whole time I'm thinking, I give up. I can't write a short story. I just can't. And I know that that's one sign that, in fact, I am writing a short story. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I'm working on a book right now where I have had this one conundrum for years. And I have never been able to figure it out until this morning. So I'm lying in bed thinking, I really, yeah, right? I'm laying in bed this morning thinking, I really should be prepping for my call with Cheryl and Nia. But I couldn't because all I could do was sit there and think about this conundrum and the fact that it was so nebulous, but I could start to feel it. There was some form creating. So I sat in the dark. I pulled out my phone and I typed a letter to my mentor, a very, very long letter about what I thought was trying to come into form. And suddenly by the end of the letter, I'm crying. I've got tiny, beautiful things, which I had pulled out and read three paragraphs of before this happened. I'm crying tears of joy because for 15 years, I've had this question about this book and it came into form today after reading three paragraphs of tiny, beautiful things. So just hang tight. Hopefully your short story won't take that long, but... (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so great. No, I know it's funny, isn't it? Those creative breakthroughs are really fascinating to me. Yeah. They in some ways, in my experience, replicate the breakthroughs we have in life. We're very often, it's only when we do feel at our lowest, the most despairing, the most sad, that feeling where we think we can't go on or it's not going to work out or we've got to give up is really when we find way forward and find the courage or the sense of inner light or resilience to take that next step into the next good thing in our lives. And that happens to me creatively all the time that I can go from feeling like, okay, I really can't do this to doing it if I have the faith to continue on. And I wish it were otherwise because (laughs) it's very hard. I don't know if you have this same agony about your work, Nia, do you when you're writing? Oh, yes. I have a voice in my head constantly with every stroke of the keyboard, just keeping a, in time a rhythm saying, you're a fraud. No. Yeah. Still? Constantly, sure. Yeah. I'm currently writing something right now, but I'm so fascinated listening to you both because I'm also in a conundrum on a finish. 
I'm in the last two scenes of the third act, and I am lost. So I'm going to do what I advise people to do, as you say, Cheryl. I'm going to print it today. I'm going to read it old school because I think that's out loud. How, yeah, out loud. Yep. Walk around, pace, play everything, and then hopefully find it. I don't know. And if I don't, I don't today. And I have to just give myself that space of failing today and going to bed with, as I say, that feeling of being lost. And it's okay. I've been here before, and I must trust that I'll get out of it. Today, I say that with bravery in my voice, but I don't feel it. I'm really lost. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I love believe you. Ladies. I know. It, it really is amazing. But see, that's what I meant when I said that to Glennon about the way it feels to be writing a book is that you can't write a book because I've learned that that is the very common experience and it's just part of the making. And I think what it is, is it's just very hard to make something out of nothing. And that's what we're doing when we're writing, where there was no short story about this particular thing and this particular voice, I am making it, where there was not that script that Mia's working on before or the book you're writing. We're bringing it into the world and it just, requires a lot from us. It really does. Yesterday, I actually thought about one of the things I wrote in Tiny Beautiful Things in the column, right? Like a motherfucker. (laughs) I said, listen, writing's hard, but coal mining's harder. And yesterday I realized, nope, I was wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh my God. Oh, that's so, yeah. Look at all the drunk, alcoholic, miserable, suicidal authors throughout history. And and they'll probably disagree with that statement. All right. This falls perfectly into my next question, which is, say you finished that article or that chapter or that manuscript and you love it, but you share it with someone that you really admire who does not. Is it your vision or theirs? At this point, when you feel like they are more schooled or more clear-headed usually than you are. Hmm. What do you say, Cheryl? Well, usually in my experience, the way that my work is received is a little more complicated than that. First of all, I always know that it's interesting to hear the perspectives of others. And sometimes it's an editor who I trust. And very often I try really hard to listen to that person. My editor, Robin Desser at Knopf, for example, she always has really wise things to say to me. And I don't do everything she suggests. Some of it I take and some of it I leave and some of it I make into something else. But sort of across the board, what I try to do is hear what people have to say about it and respond to the extent that I can, but also recognize that there's no accounting for taste. There's no book or scripts that anyone has ever written in the history of books or scripts that everyone loved right? or that everyone hated. And I think that for me to take that in, to understand that subjectivity is part of art, that it's my own subjectivity, that I think that sentence is good that way instead of that way versus somebody else's idea of that. And what I've learned is how to sort of walk that line between standing my ground and saying that this is the best way and going, oh, no, you know what? You're right. Thank you. Because thank goodness for editors. I love editors. I know. (laughs) Me too. We are not working against each other. When I think about that first draft of Wild I wrote versus the final draft, I feel nothing but gratitude for Robin who weighed in mightily. I did all the work. I did all the writing, but she really helped me think about Mm -hmm. some very important things, large and small. Mm -hmm. For book writing, I too, I loved my editor when I was writing Instant Mom. 
because she urged me to be brave. I had set out to write a funny story, but my editor reminded me that I described my daughter as a brave person because she was almost three years old, walked into my life, and suddenly I got to be her mother. Mm -hmm. I called the book Instant Mom in an ironic way because I had 14 hours notice and suddenly <laughs> my daughter was in my house. But it was a 10-year yeah, trip. Yeah, odyssey. It was exactly. an odyssey. 10-year trip to get there. So I loved that. I threw out my whole first draft of funny stories and began again and told the truth. I didn't sugarcoat it. I told the truth of what it was like to be matched with a toddler by American foster care and suddenly become a mother. And, and it's funny. I tried to make it funny because it came It was out. very funny. Very Thank funny. you. Funny stuff happens. Can I just say, I love that book so much. I love it. You and I like met and then I immediately read it and I could not put it down and I have such a strong memory of just yeah, this same. feeling of like needing to get to the next page urgently. It's, such, it's really a riveting and beautiful read. Thank you. God. Oh, thank you. Okay. Wow. So in, in, thank you, blushing across the nation. Totally agree. And by the way, I listened to it twice on audio because it was so damn entertaining. And I read it. I recommended it to people who aren't even parents and loved it. I mean, it's just a great book, yeah. period. You're a great writer, but and I assume you know that. <laughs> you're an Academy Award nominated writer, but you're a great writer, Nia. Thank you, you guys. Stop. Okay, stop. Let's go back to writing. Get. Thank okay. you. Cheryl, do you remember what I told you that I described how I've seen people gush, how I describe it when I see people gush to Cheryl that she is their religion? Yes. Her words and her writing, all of her books have changed how their outlook. And I'm working on that. I have difficulty accepting praise. I'm working on it because I know what it does. It makes the people... Who are admiring my work, it sometimes makes them uncomfortable that I am uncomfortable. So because I am a Canadian middle child, I'm working on making people more comfortable telling me <laughs> what they like about my writing. <laughs> okay. um, what I was going to say about the writing process with screenplays is you write a screenplay and then you're in a room with people that you hopefully trust and they give you feedback and I think we all are saying we love feedback and input and whether we take the idea or not, it's good to air it and talk about your work. What I call the process is no brings us closer to yes. Because if someone gives me an idea and I don't like it, in debating why I don't like it, I will realize what I do like and end up doing that. Mm, true. Every yeah. time. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, so say that you love your editor. And then God forbid, she leaves your publishing house, which has happened to me. It's probably happened to one of you. What do you do then if she wants to take you with her? You're torn. You love your publisher, but you also love your editor. Stay or go? Has that ever happened to you, Cheryl? Yes, it has happened to me. <laughs> Is it confidential? We don't have to talk about it. <laughs> well, yeah. As we're talking, I'm looking up really quick to see if the news has come out. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's happening to me right now. It's happening in a couple of ways. My first editor, Janet Silver was at Houghton Mifflin with my first novel and there was a merger and everything and she was laid off or fired actually. And she decided to become an agent. Yes, that happens all the time. Yeah. So I decided to go with her as my agent and she is. So it was a wonderful thing where we had this great working relationship as editor, wow. author, 
And then we were just so close. I just knew that even though I liked my current agent too, and she's a wonderful person, I was also like, well, it just makes sense for me to stay with this woman who actually has been so intimately involved in my writing and my work. So that happened. And then now Robin Desser at Knopf has been tapped to be the head of Random House. And she's actually starting her job. I think just this week she's on the job. And of course, I love Knopf. I love my family there. But, you know, that very close relationship you have with an editor, I really do want to follow her. We're figuring that out now if that can happen. But it's funny that relationship you develop. It isn't really between you and a corporation. I want to say that you hear a lot about writers who have books at big publishing houses. There's this sense of this some big machine is just putting the books out. And that might be true in some cases, but that's not been my experience. My relationship is very personal with my editors in both the case and Janet and Robin. I don't feel like I'm working with a corporation. I feel like I'm working with a really smart human who loves books. Totally agree. I remember Michelle Martin started off as an agent and she repped Gabby Bernstein and then she became a publisher and then she became an agent again. She's repping Gabby Bernstein as an agent again. So people switch all the time in publishing. Okay, I got a big question for you guys. You're scheduled to headline an event and then you find out that they indirectly support the building of a pipeline or a wall or locking up kids or some shit. Do you cancel? And is it a public shaming or do you walk away quietly? Mia? (laughs) I can answer this. Yeah, I've had a couple of situations recently where somebody who I think it's almost a miracle he hasn't been indicted at this point, does a sort of a machination behind a closed door to get me to appear at an event. And then I find out that he's behind it again. And I've very quietly pulled out. That's my thing. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think it depends to the nature of the event. I found myself several years ago, I do a lot of paid speaking gigs with nonprofit galas or corporate retreats or things like this where they bring in a speaker to kind of be the entertainment or the inspiration or whatnot at their conference or their convention. And several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, I found myself at this big, fancy, expensive resort in Arizona. And I had kind of only glanced really at what I was doing there. I had accepted the thing, thinking that I was going to the pipe fitter, like the steam pipe fitters union convention. And I said yes to it because my great uncles were all these union pipe fitter guys in Philadelphia. And I just thought, oh, how amazing. Those folks want me to come talk. And I get there and I'm reading the sheet and I realize that what I'm speaking of is the pipeline contractors of America. Oh, like oh no! Yeah, the oil pipeline. No joke. I'm not kidding. Going right through indigenous lands. Yes, those are the people. Right, exactly. So I am like, holy smoke, what am I doing here? And I soon realized there was this one little stipulation. Before the keynote, I was supposed to go to this hotel room, the penthouse suite at this hotel, and meet the president of the pipeline contractors and have a chat. So I went up there. And immediately I met this man, this elderly man, who said, you're not here to talk to me. You're here to talk to my wife. And she is the one who insisted that we invite you to talk because she's a big fan. So I sat down with her and we had this amazing conversation. And she said, yep, I just told my husband, if you want me to come with you this year, you're getting Cheryl straight. And that's (laughs) why you're here. Well, of course, I was then terrified because I thought, what am I going to say to these people? I walk in 
to a room full of men and the guy's wife, the only woman in the room, really. And what am I going to say to them? And what I decided to do is I think what art is about, what writing is about, what really I think is my greatest mission as a writer, that's to build a bridge across what we see as a divide. Mm -hmm. I grew up in rural Minnesota. When I looked out at the audience, I knew those men. I grew up among those men, working class men who actually do love the outdoors. And I thought, I'm going to talk to them about that. I'm going to talk to them about my experiences on the trail, those universal things that connect us, and really the importance of protecting our wild places. And so I was definitely seen as the sort of feminist liberal woman up there talking about nature and her feelings and so forth. But what was striking is they listened to me. And afterwards, every one of those guys lined up and got a book signed by me. Now, granted, they all asked me to sign them to their wives. But to everyone, I said, you should read it too. This is for you too. And probably no change was made on this earth but that you day. Don't know that. But maybe, maybe somebody thought a little bit more about the environmental consequences of that work or that mission. Absolutely. Uh, and they didn't before. So I think that that's really what we can do when we dare to kind of speak outside a place where we know that we're going to be received by the choir. Oh, that's fantastic. So fantastic. I love that story. That is great. That's the grace that you carry yourself with, Cheryl, that I, I just love. You stay true to yourself and you, you handle it with grace because what I call it in negotiations, contract negotiations with business affairs of the studio is they come at you with swords out and you're like, whoa, I'm just trying to make a living and <laughs> make the same living as a, a male screenwriter, by the way. Yeah. And when the negotiations get tense, what I've learned to call it is giving the rat a hole to crawl out of. <laughs> you <have> to, <laughs> yeah. You have to give and make somebody feel like they've won sometimes or that they've managed to retain their dignity and you'll be heard. So yeah. I think, I think you gave them all a little hole to exist within and they heard you. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. It was a lesson. It was hard. Another time that I really thought about this is I was invited to the Emirates Literary Festival in Dubai. Yep. And the question that I think so many artists are always facing is like, do you go participate in a literary festival in a country that has yep. policies that are, that you don't agree with? And yet what I find is every time we reach across any kind of border, good things come. I ended up going to me. I answered that question when I thought, well, do I agree with everything the United States government does? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't. That's and I didn't go to Dubai on a self-promotion mission, on a money-making mission. I went there on, frankly, a humanitarian mission. I wanted to have conversations with people who were really different from me about literature, about books. And I mean, I had some of the most moving experiences I've ever had in talking about my book. Wow. I had them with women who live in Dubai. And we found again, Writers who come from all kinds of different cultures and places and value systems and belief systems. And it was moving and enlightening and it was a bridge instead of a wall. Yes. Okay. So as you two know, I'm writing a book based on this podcast. And one of the chapters is called No Degree, No Problem. School or no school, there's no singular path to becoming a writer. So I would love to know your thoughts on getting a college degree and how your education affected your career as a writer or didn't. 
I don't have a hard and fast rule on that. I think there is no one way to be a writer. I also am a huge supporter of going back to school later when I think our brains are a little bit more open to responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah, I agree. There are all paths to the mountaintop, as they say. And, And I think that college is important to different people for different reasons. I grew up working class in rural America, and I didn't know anyone who had written books. And I didn't know many people who even read books. And I wasn't among educated people. And so college was an incredibly important portal for me to pass through. It was essentially the place where my life most radically changed. A lot of people, after Wild was a big hit, reporters would always say, oh my gosh, your life must have changed so much. And I was like, not really. The only way my life really changed significantly with the publication of Wild was that I could pay my bills with more ease than I had before, which was with none. (laughs) Before I struggled financially, didn't have security. But really when my life changed is when I went to college and I saw that there was this whole world of people who uh, painted and wrote and acted and were scientists and mathematicians and all of that suddenly became accessible to me. So it was a very important piece of my ability to become a writer. There's education. I learned a lot, but I think also just to learn how to be in a new piece of this of society, if you will. Yeah. And everything about it was magic and it radically changed my life. I'm really grateful for my education. And I love that your mama went too. That's Yeah. I think it was magical that you got to go with her and that she Got to experience that at the end of her life. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. Mm. Okay. So what the hell about having to be beautiful? Danny Shapiro and Danielle Laporte had the funniest conversation on the show about they get booked for a speaking gig or they get booked for a TV show. And the first thing they're thinking, and they hate this, but they can't help it is, oh my God, what am I going to wear? What about my shoes? How am I going to get a blowout? It's going to be four in the morning. Am I going to have bags under my eyes? And I think about this word beautiful as I think you two have as well, because it's in the title of my show. It's in the title of your work. What the hell? I actually have trouble sometimes booking guests on this show who don't look like supermodels because so many people who are successful look like supermodels because what? We all have to be mediagenic. I actually, and I'm on a rant because it pisses me off, but I actually had an agent tell me once, Linda, before we shop your memoir, I have to tell you that I talked to somebody in publishing about it. And she said to me, I hope she's gorgeous. And I said, well, of course she is. And I said, don't do that. Don't do that to me because I don't want to feel like I have to feel gorgeous. And I certainly don't want others to feel like I have to be gorgeous. Like what the, what the fuck? (laughs) So (laughs) Cheryl, you've said some interesting things on this lately. And I'm just, I'm ranting, but I'm wondering if you have any wisdom for us here on this beautiful front. I don't know. Because I'm talking, sorry, my book and my podcast, I'm talking about their talent, their beautiful writing, and their insides, not their outsides. Yeah, and that's the only beauty that actually matters or counts to anyone unless they're insane. But I think that (laughs) the struggle is real. And it's one I think that honestly, almost every woman grapples with to one degree or another. And the forward march in my life has been one toward trying to let that go and really trying to accept myself for who I am and the way I look and not feel terrible about it. But I can't tell you that I have succeeded or that I don't invest a lot of kind of energy in wanting to kind of look at least moderately not 
like a monster, you know, in front of people. <laughs> and yet I also have boundaries. I also want to show a face to the world that is real, that does look like the 51-year-old woman that I am and not yeah. like some sort of facade. So yeah, I don't have the wisdom except to say that I do think that it's up to us the same way that any sort of feminist struggle that's made progress, we join together and make decisions to do things differently. I and that. I would love for women to do that, women and girls to do that across the world to say, we are going to actually say, no, get used to this looking like this. And sadly, I think it's gone the other direction. I think that we see very much the opposite. We see a lot of women saying that we're going to look better and better and younger and younger and thinner and thinner and prettier and prettier and all of that stuff. We're not redefining beauty in ways that I think are significant. And that makes me sad. Yeah, I think it would be far more empowering if we redefined it in this generation. But we have Instagram and we have a an entire generation, two, three of them, obsessed with taking a selfie and then editing it. It's not real. It's completely damaged their psyche and self-esteem. And we just have to concentrate more on what's inside them. What book do you have to write? What painting do you have to know? What yes. cure for cancer is inside your brain? Please, please stop with the selfies and the go more for the introspection, I say. Oh, so good. All right. I want to end with my favorite line from Tiny Beautiful Things. And it's the one about the useless days will add up to something. I think so many of our listeners feel like they waste time or they're caught in that conundrum with their story for years and it's never going to work out. And I always try to remind people that, that the project is like something on the stove and it's simmering. It doesn't look like much is happening, but it's simmering and one day it'll be cooked. So this idea that the useless days will add up to something just really, it hits home for me. It's like saying there is no wasted time. So Nia, I want to know from you... What was your favorite line to speak from Tiny Beautiful Things? I love the line that you just mentioned because I got to see Natalie Willems Torres do it for two runs in New York in 2016, 2017, and then our run in Los Angeles in 2019. And when we cast her, Cheryl, remember she was like a baby, just a young actress, and we became such good friends, and I saw her mature is this beautiful person who's one of my closest friends. So I loved watching her do that line every single show because oh. she was the embodiment of your word, Cheryl. She wow. became a professional actress in the time that mm. I knew her in those three years. So that was great. For me, it's the ordinary miraculous. We cannot possibly know what will manifest in our lives. We live and have experiences and leave people we love and get left by them. Uh, it just, it stays with me in so yeah. many ways. Mm. We cannot possibly know what will manifest in our lives. It's, uh, it's helpful and it also, it has a feeling for me of just letting go a little bit and just being in the moment. <sighs> Cheryl, do you have a favorite line? Listening to me, uh, say that line is so moving to me. First of all, it means a lot to me. That particular piece means a lot to me, The Ordinary Miraculous. But just to hear the way that Nia says it, this is powerful to me. And to witness what she did on stage 
over and over again. It was breathtaking. It always took my breath away and moved me. I always felt this deep sense of gratitude that she brought her life into my life in that way. I mean, we became, (laughs) one of the things I would say is we're all sugar and certainly Mia is high up there on the list of the people who really, who really are. And she said those words in front of so many audiences who laughed and cried and cried and cried and cried. And so, yeah, it means a lot to me to hear that. Thank you, Nia. Isn't it great, Cheryl, that as Tommy Kale says, we made something. And then I admired your work. And then to get to know you as a person, you are, we're such close friends and you are a tiny, beautiful person, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a tiny fierce beautiful person yeah. Yeah. maybe not so tiny but a medium sort of medium sized beautiful <laughs> perfect oh my <laughs> I adore you too thank you thank you for doing this this has been a wonderful conversation so thank you Linda and whenever I'm in Nia's company they're never out of work there are too many things to say thank you oh, so fun. much Linda thank you All right, you take care. Bye. Okay. okay. Love. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Love these ladies so much. Huge thanks to Cheryl and Nia for taking the time. If you, dear listener, can get yourself to a production of Tiny Beautiful Things, wrangle your sisters, your brothers, your besties, your older children, and your parents. Bring your hankies and be ready to laugh and cry as you thank your lucky stars for the makers, the dreamers, the artists, the translators, those who put it all on the line so we can experience this nearly unbearably beautiful degree of art and humanity. Dig back into the book too, before you write, and let the material unzip you as it does for Nia and me. I want to thank my buddy, best-selling author Samantha Bennett, who was in Second City with Nia and introduced us and took me to see Nia play Cheryl that night in Pasadena. To quote Cheryl, we cannot possibly know what will happen in our lives. What a great lesson. A reminder to have patience on our creative paths. As a reminder, these episodes are playing on the Beautiful Writers channel on all American Airlines in-flight entertainment systems. So look for us in the era the next time you fly American. As always, I so appreciate your five stars or love notes over on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It really does help other writers find the support they're looking for and hopefully the comfort I am always trying to offer here because no one wants to feel alone in their writing. If you're looking for in-person support and cheerleading and story midwifery, check out my writing retreats at bookmama.com. I still have two spots for the May retreat and a couple during the summer. And lastly, I'll say, when all else fails, remember Nia's simple adage, hashtag write a page, eat a snack. (laughs) Thanks, you guys. I adore you. Right on.